We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Support for this podcast comes from U.S. Bank. When it's time for a new credit card, the best ones do way more than just buy stuff. And that's why U.S. Bank offers credit cards that make every day more rewarding. Earn cash back. Score points when you shop, dine out, travel, or binge watch. Or get a low intro APR. U.S. Bank credit cards were designed to fit your lifestyle. So make every day more rewarding. And check out usbank.com slash credit card. U.S. Bank credit cards are issued by U.S. Bank National Association N.D. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. Welcome in to the Rotowire NFL podcast, the Thursday edition. It is Thursday, August 6th. I am your host, John McKechnie, joined as always by Mario Puig. This podcast brought to you by our friends over at Dynasty Owner. Uh, so the calendar has turned to August, and uh, we, we have more and more news pouring in by the day, uh, which is a very, very welcome uh, little distraction. Uh, one of the big headlines that, that caught my eye this morning, Mario, uh, was out of Vegas, uh, as that is usually the case. Um, Henry Ruggs uh, is in the news, and uh, it looks like Vegas offensive coordinator Greg Olson, uh, O-L-S-O-N, uh, will be uh, aiming to use Henry Ruggs, the first-round receiver, out of the slot. And that, that, uh, that seems to fly in the face of you know whatever role Hunter Renfro w- was projected to have. Um, I think Ruggs was more envisioned by, by most, myself included, to be a guy that, that sticks to the outside, can play in the slot when necessary. But um, I certainly didn't see you know, this supercharged 4-2, uh, 4-2-8 type of speed guy being deployed as a slot-only guy uh, right away. Yeah, it's not how I quite read it, though. I feel like it's more likely to be just kind of a chronology sort of thing, like Olsen saying, we're going to begin with Henry Ruggs in the slot, and as he picks that up, we'll move him around outside, because he indicated that they're they're definitely going to move him around at some point in time, and, you know, it, it's probably a good sign, in my opinion, that they're looking at him in the slot first, not that it's a going to be a final you know playing spot for him it, it might only be like he plays in the slot i don't know 30 40 percent of the time but to me it just looks like they're running him from there because those are the reps in practice where maybe it's kind of like easiest to get him in a rhythm with Derek carr on these kind of low depth of target easy sort of targets rather than making him mostly work with carr on these really ambitious uh you know 30 yard bombs that that's the stuff they'll get to eventually but it's showing i think in the meantime uh, an intention to get him some some real actual target reps, get him catching and running with the football. 
uh, in the slot where Carr actually does throw. Mm-hmm. So just so just showing like a general intention of using him more as an actual target and less as a decoy, because if they were if they were OK with letting him start out outside, it would show that they're, I think, kind of content to let him just have his speed pull the safeties back. Whereas giving him these reps, it shows, I think, that they're actually trying to get him ready to catch some passes. Yeah, that, that's absolutely, you know, an interesting read on it. And, you know, when you look at where Carr tends to throw the ball, we, we've been over this. But, I mean, he's he's someone who um, his average target depth last year, 6.6, you know, among the worst, if not the worst in the league, um, as far as like, you know, full-time starters are concerned. Um, so obviously that, that seems to suggest that he's going to be hitting, uh, the slot receiver a fair bit. I you know, that shows, uh, in Hunter Renfro's impressive numbers as a rookie rugs, obviously a totally different cat, uh, than Renfro. Um, yeah. so, so getting, getting that, yeah, part of his route tree developed even further and, and getting, getting that, that immediate, uh, rapport with Carr and then building out from there, it, it, you know, that seems like a good application of rugs, I would say. Yeah, definitely. And I don't think that like as much as I'm kind of probably more skeptical of Hunter Renfro than maybe most people, I wouldn't take this as, you know, it's over for Renfro. I, I think this just is kind of like they're starting rugs in the slot to, to get those easy targets and then they'll probably try to get them outside and get them some other sort of low depth of target manufactured targets out there. Just get them versed on, on you know, running routes and, and having to catch passes from car at a variety of angles from a variety of looks. And, you know, kind of evaluating him the whole way, seeing what works best. But we do know that Renfro can only run from the slot. So it's true if, if Ruggs is lined up in the slot on a given play, there's uh, it's either that they're running a, a trips formation where they have multiple slot receiver routes or Renfro's on the bench. So it's it is a it is a way that it could go pretty wrong for Renfro. It just would be kind of weird and actually kind of difficult to justify really um you know moving renfro away from the usage given that he was one of the things that were going right last year yeah i can understand you know trying to replace him if if he uh starts slow or something like that but uh, to do it going into the into camp would be a little strange so i doubt they're doing that yeah no because uh, like we've established maybe not the highest ceiling on on hunter renfro but certainly someone that that was uh, productive when targeted last year. I mean, a 70% catch rate, that's extremely reliable, pretty good after the catch, although, you know, may, maybe that uh, regresses a bit this year, but but still, uh, you know, a functional use of a, of a slot receiver when, when Hunter Renfro's out there. So it'll be interesting to see how, how that slot situation uh, develops. But certainly uh, when it comes to th- this offense, uh, Carr is the one to uh, to go and, and, and lean on those shorter routes for, for and, sure. And- and John, uh, I actually hadn't been drafting any Henry Ruggs in any of the drafts so far. I was kind of too worried about that decoy thing. And for whatever it's worth to anybody, uh, them getting him going from the slot like this makes me feel a little less concerned about the decoy outcome. Because if, if like I said before, if they were if they were okay with him just you know running laps basically out wide and, and just taking the safety on fly routes over and over then i'd be like uh, i'm not really seeing how Carr throws to this guy you know so um going about it this way makes it seem like they're actually going to throw him the ball and if he's getting targets i, I definitely like to buy in because he he should be good and that speed you know even, even if you're not that good it, that kind of speed's going to play okay so with, with that in mind does he change it all like Maybe not in your rookie rankings necessarily, but um, you know, like, like you did kind of imply there, you're a little bit more open to, to drafting him at, at, at current ADP. Well, he's never struck me as especially cheap, but you know, it's, it's one of those things like a couple of days ago, if I looked at this in, in an NFFC ADP for, uh, for the month of August, he's going about 119, uh, technically 122.4, it looks like here. And a couple days ago, I would have looked at that and I would have said, ah, no, no, thanks. I'll take uh, whatever somebody else, uh, Justin Jefferson, Anthony Miller, somebody like that a little later. Um, whereas now I'm looking at it and I can actually see the upside scenario so I can more easily justify the risk. I can see the case for somebody ranking rugs about the same as they do Mecole Hardman. Uh, not not because he has the same level of upside, of course, because the, the, the Raiders passing game will be nothing like that. But um, he's if, if Ruggs is realistically getting something like, I don't know, uh, just like 15, 20 slot snaps a game, I can see him functioning as basically like the wide receiver or the, or the, the pass catcher two in the offense 
after Darren Waller. Mm-hmm. And so if he's if he's seconds in line, then, uh, you know, you can get away with a worse passing game because Meikle's starting at, you know, fourth in line, basically. Yeah, with, with, you know, very little room for upward mobility outside of, you know, injuries to, right. to someone in the Chiefs offense. So, yeah, Ruggs at least locked into uh, being that that one B option in, in this Raiders offense. Um, if you know, if Ruggs is taking on some of these uh, slot snaps, Tyrell Williams um, kind of tethered to his spot. Does this, uh, you know, maybe open the door for for Brian Edwards to become fantasy relevant as early as 2020? It could, but I feel like for Edwards to have his immediate breakout scenario, it really would need to be the, the disaster outcome for Hunter Renfro. And it is possible, and if I was running that team, it would have already happened because <laughs> I'm, I'm a, I am a little bit of a Renfro uh, hater, but I am more so a truther about Edwards and even Lynn Bowden. I, I would not be putting him at running back to, to make room for other guys. I'd be getting Bowden on the field at receiver. Um, but yeah, if, if Hunter Renfro is not in the slot – he's basically non-competitive outside. Like it, it would almost be a by default thing that Edwards would get the outside rep if it were an outside rep that were still up for grabs. So Ruggs needs to displace Renfro from the slot and on a pretty kind of like permanent, uh, you know, most of the time kind of basis. And I, I just don't really see that happening, at least not until or not unless they, they keep going to Renfro and he starts to fail. If he's like dropping passes and he's not creating plays like he did last year, mm-hmm. maybe they shake things up at that point. But I as much as I love Edwards, I just don't think they're going to even give him really the chance. If, if it looks like Ruggs and Edwards are, are the two best options for them, respectively, at slot and outside receiver. I still think they're going to kind of just, you know, fudge it and force, you know, Renfro to have the first dibs and then kind of uh, just leave Ruggs kind of chasing the scraps between the snaps uh, behind Renfro and behind Tyrell Williams. It, you know, it's interesting because I feel like Tyrell Williams, despite being like the, the number one guy on, on their receiver depth chart, gets like basically no buzz out, out of out of Vegas or really in the fantasy community um, yeah. in a, a lot of times. And, you know, he is you know, on the second year of a four year, $44 million deal. And it it feels like he doesn't get like any pub whatsoever. And he was productive with the targets he got last year. I think, you know, you've kind of laid out a a point before where, you know, maybe he's not that guy that's going to, you know, be reliable for, for a hundred targets, but uh, especially with his game, uh, not really meshing super well with, with car or one way or the other. But I mean, what do you make of him? And, you know, if there is this like, you know, all quiet on, on the front when it, when it comes to Tyrell Williams, like, do you think he's like a tr- preseason trade candidate? Like it, it just feels like he do- doesn't get included in the, in the Raiders conversation whatsoever. I guess I'd be surprised if they moved on from him just because he is good at the things they had any good reason for him to expect him to, uh, to contribute at. Like if they signed him to that contract, expecting him to be a, you know, true wide receiver, one 1400 yard guy, that just kind of be ridiculous. So I had to figure they're okay with paying him what they're paying him to do exactly what he did last year. And he had that plantar fasciitis or something like that was, was throwing him off for a while there. Yep. And sometimes guys just don't play with that. And he tried to play through it. He started pretty fast uh, and then slowed down. So maybe the injury had something to do with that. It might not have, though, because even, I guess I should say, aside from his second year with the Chargers when Keenan Allen had some kind of injury, I can't remember what one it was that year, that was the only year that Tyrell Williams was targeted at uh, like a, a wide receiver one kind of frequency. So the rest of his career, it's basically been such that uh, he gets open and he, he makes his yards per target figure really high and he catches a good number of his targets too but he doesn't create the the throwing lane frequently enough for the quarterback to really put more volume on him the only way he really exceeds that kind of uh one every whatever uh that kind of like 85 target per year kind of pace the only way he really has gone over that is when the the quarterback just had to throw him the ball because he was the only guy out there really so Mm -hmm. um i don't think like i'm guessing at this point it's it's because he just doesn't really get open underneath as well as he does downfield and and especially a guy like Derek carr is never going to throw downfield as much as he will uh underneath so i just think he's kind of capped at like an 85 sort of target pace on 16 games unless they start giving him underneath routes and underneath targets because Carr will throw to him there. It's just they seem to keep using him downfield as kind of like a post and fade route kind of uh, sorry, a uh, fly route kind of threat. Right. And, and you know, if they 
if they started to use him a little bit more underneath, you know, it's like, man, they already have like three or four guys, you know, in that area. Uh, so it, it would, you know, work against the offense. I think it would yeah, tend to clog things up. He, he kind of like sets the roof for the other guys to, you know, be sheltered underneath by, by tangling up the safety on every play. Yeah. So I, I think that, you know, that role probably continues. And, and like you said, that that's a role that doesn't get fed a whole lot um, in the in this Raiders offense. Uh, let's move on over to uh, Tampa Bay. Um, I feel like we absolutely cannot escape them. There, there is a big, you know, news item coming out of there every single week, you know, with, with Bruce Arians, you know, say, you know, saying whatever he's saying and, you know, uh, the, the LaShawn McCoy signing, everything like that. But he comes out Wednesday and, and refers to Ronald Jones as the main guy. So uh, there's been a lot of, or that's been used as a lot of quote fodder. Uh, we are not above that. Uh, let's get into it. What what does that mean, if anything? Well, we've, I think, both been kind of like, or at least out of the NFL draft back in May, we were saying uh, probably fake Keyshawn Vaughn at this sort of fifth, sixth, sort of round ADP. And then his price, for some reason, fell off lately. And we were like, okay, maybe he's fine now. Uh, whereas like Ronald Jones that whole time had kind of been, I don't know, what was it like the, the late seventh, late eighth sort of, uh, and then he started creeping up lately, even before this Bruce Arians quote. So Bruce Arians saying this is probably going to make Ronald Jones's price just kind of go insane from this point. And I won't have any interest in paying for it. I mean, he could, it could turn out fine for a lot of reasons because the situation could be good in a lot of ways like that Tampa Bay defense could really control game scripts and leave the Buccaneers in position to feed Jones carries in an offense that could theoretically spend a lot of time in scoring position. He could be the beneficiary of that if it's true. So uh, he, and you know, he was, he was a big time high explosiveness sort of producer at USC. So Mm -hmm. there's, there is still theoretically that little bit of upside that could just kind of switch on. Uh, You know, he's only 23. He's actually three months younger than Vaughn, as we pointed out a lot of times. So he could like the theory is there. I just don't trust Arians in any sense, really. Like, I don't trust Arians to be honest when he's saying this. I don't trust Arians to know enough about what he's talking about to see it through, even if he does mean it. I don't trust him to I don't know, even really like I don't trust him to, to give jones any sort of leash like if, if they go into a game and, and jones fumbles or if if he uh whatever mits, misses a blitz pickup i can see mccoy you know just kind of like wasting the rest of the game with with uh you know the next five drives or whatever and he doesn't really do anything but arians if only because he's kind of just like fickle and uh crotchety just decides like gotta 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 send a message got to send a message that bad plays are bad and we don't want bad plays. And, it's, you know, a young running back is is the type of player who always gets demonstrated with that sort of, uh, you know, uh, with, with that example that, that, that coaches like Arians like to make for whatever stupid reason. So I don't trust enough of it to, to feel eager to pay a higher price for it. Like I like Jones before when he was kind of in that, you know, easy flex acquisition price. Like, whereas now you got to pay, maybe like a high-end running back too. And that's just, I don't know. It could work, but I'd, I'd rather test my luck with some other options. Yeah, so it looks like over the last uh, week or so, um, so that this does account for, for days that, um, you know, uh, what, Bruce Arians wasn't coming out and, and saying that, that he's the lead guy, but, you know, he's been picked as high as 51 um, over yeah. the course of the last week. So like an early fifth round type of uh, selection. And, you know, that 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 does feel... Um, way too way too rich for my blood like I, I was open to him you know like when he was going in the 70s around there but um if you if the new price is set at you know somewhere in the in the early fifth like yeah, i'm gonna have a hard time trusting that just because that there are so yeah. many factors at, at play when it comes to you know the the history of arians with uh young running backs like you said that you know maybe make some mistakes here and there in things that don't pertain to running the football um and then you know just his propensity to to give um, the veteran, um, maybe a little bit more looks that than is necessary or is actually helpful uh, to the team itself. So um, there, there's too much unknown, I guess, for for Jones to to be worth that that new much higher price, even with the, this quote in mind. 
Yeah, that's how I feel. And um, again, it, it could be one of those things where he has a really big year. There's there's certainly been cases of running backs who uh, basically aren't that good, but they, they stumble into like 12 rushing touchdowns or something like that. And Jones could have that happen if Brady's as good as everyone still thinks and as, as, if that defense is as good as, uh, as I and a lot of other people think it is. But I don't think Jones is necessarily like, – I guess for some perspective, specifically to the running backs who kind of went at a price similar to Jones up until, you know, recently anyway, uh, Darius Geis to me is clearly the better player between him and Ronald Jones. And I don't think Jones's situation is demonstrably better than Geis's. So I, I see Geis as a bigger injury risk, but I only um, find him too much of an injury risk, I guess, if it's like he costs more than Jones and if Jones is going to cost a lot more I would definitely take Geis with that you know 10 times out of 10 basically right because Geis is sitting there uh, still occasionally going outside the top 100 and, and never going higher than than pick 67 um, over the last week so um, I, I feel like the the no tra- training or I'm sorry the, the no preseason game kind of is going to keep that Geis ADP reasonable unless we start hearing some just crazy stuff out, out of Washington camp because I feel if like he's healthy if he's healthy we probably will though because he's he, he's definitely like a highlight friendly kind of player he's he's a, he'll he'll convert people who have uh, to this point just been you know mad at how there's that stupid uh, red cross next to his name on the fantasy websites like that's all they understand him as but uh, yeah his, his highlights are sick right they are and, and thus with, with no preseason um, you know may, maybe uh, people won't catch on until it's a little bit too late but yeah just totally electric explosive runner uh, when he's healthy you know I think he had a better LSU career basically that than Leonard Fournette did really um, and fell way further in the draft um, Obviously, like you said, the injury, uh, major part of, of his career to this point. But w- when he's healthy, and hopefully th- we get a full season of Geist this year, then you know he would. If that is the case, then he definitely will outperform uh, Ronald Jones. Any other uh, thoughts on on this Tampa Bay backfield uh, before we move on? Like, is Keyshawn Vaughn like completely out of sight, out of mind now? He's not someone you should expect any particular thing from. But if his price keeps falling. I could be interested in buying because I, I don't know. He's on the COVID list along with Raymond Calais. I know that LaShawn McCoy was signed, but McCoy probably isn't very good. And Arian signed him ostensibly to be like the reliable uh, alternative, but he's not reliable. Like he, he screwed up that blitz pickup really badly last year for the Chiefs that took back the, the Hardman touchdown and he fumbled three times. He's not actually reliable, so I'm not convinced he'll be more reliable than Vaughn. So I, I can see Vaughn still being the passing down guy there. But, um, yeah, I'm getting a little creeped out about you know everybody's COVID situation, so I'd like to see him get activated from that. Right, yeah. So but we're – it's a wait and see mode, of course, when it comes to that. Well, and uh, you know, hopefully he gets cleared and uh, you know past any symptoms here and any uh, in the very near future and gets back out on the field. Uh, before we move on to our next topic, we got a message from our friends over at Dynasty Owner. I've been looking for a new challenge, which is why I'm playing on Dynasty Owner Fantasy Football this season. Dynasty Owner Fantasy Football unites the fun and excitement of fantasy football with the skill and strategy of the front office. Dynasty Owner is the only way to play fantasy football with real salaries, adding the strategy of running an NFL franchise together. Dynasty Owner provides a unique challenge for diehard fantasy football fanatics. Go to DynastyOwner.com slash Rotowire. Leagues are forming right now. That's DynastyOwner.com com slash rotowire we've all been in a league where the winner just got lucky but if you're like me and you're better than most dynasty owner gives you the platform to prove it dynasty owner favors skilled players who can manage their rosters using nfl salaries within the salary cap it adds an entirely entirely new level of strategy go to dynastyowner.com slash rotowire validate your fantasy football skills that's dynastyowner.com slash rotowire dynasty owner start your dynasty today we also got a message from our friends over at FanDraft. Take your league's fantasy football draft to the next level with FanDraft, the online fantasy football draft board. FanDraft makes you your draft feel like the actual NFL draft with features such as a streaming ticker, live draft clock, custom logos, team walk-up songs, multiple draft board displays, and more. 
FanDraft can be used offline for in-person drafts by exporting the display via projector or onto a large TV screen for the whole league to enjoy, but it can also be used fully online, and you can add any number of your league owners can join the draft remotely. And you can perform both traditional and auction-style drafts. FanDraft also tons of customizable stuff, supports IDPs, rookie-only drafts, keepers, and just about any other customization to meet your league requirements. You can sign up for a free trial account at fandraft.com. And when you're ready to order the pro account, make sure to use promo code ROTOPOD15, that's R-O-T-O-P-O-D-15, to save 15% off your purchase. Again, that's fandraft.com, and use promo code ROTOPOD15 to save 15%. And we also have a message from our friends over at AutoNew. AutoNew Fantasy Football lets you build your fantasy football dynasty like a real GM. It's better fantasy football. Auction-based, deep rosters, and college player prospects. Stash the next Rookie of the Year while he is still tearing it up on Saturdays. Trade for superstars to make a championship push. Develop a team over multiple years. Play against the best fantasy football competition on the internet. Visit OTT. O-N-E-U.com today. That's O-T-T-O-N-E-U.com today. All right, Mario, let's stick in the in the state of Florida and uh, move on down uh, to Miami. So all indications are, are that Preston Williams is cleared for football activities. He's, uh, he's obviously coming off of the ACL injury uh, suffered in week nine uh, last year. Um, so he's had a good bit of time here to, to get uh, back in gear. Um, but still, anytime that we're talking about a skill position guy coming off an, off an ACL, um, it, it definitely adds you know a layer of uncertainty to to the analysis that you can really um, apply to him. So, what do you make of Williams and this uh, Dolphins receiving core as as we open things up about the Dolphins? Well, it's an interesting situation, and it's one that could matter quite a bit for for the question of uh, you know where where the real value is at receiver this year because Devontae Parker was one of the big answers last year. You know, he was going undrafted or in the last couple rounds of a lot of drafts, and he had that awesome season, very convincingly dominated. You know, lighting up Stephon Gilmore late in the year in that one game. But as good as Devontae Parker was, and I'm. I was a Devontae Parker truther the whole time. I always just blamed Adam Gase and uh, to a lesser extent injuries for uh, Devontae Parker not breaking out before. But last year was something that should have been able to happen before. Uh, With that said, even last year, it only happened specifically in the context of the Dolphins defense being perhaps the worst in the league and Preston Williams tearing his ACL in week nine. So Parker was doing fine before that. Like he had a, you know, a three touchdown, a a three game touchdown streak going into week eight, scored again in that week nine game. But he didn't have any 100 yard games until after the Preston Williams injury. And then he had four of those. He he only had one double digit target game during that opening half of the season as well. And he had like six in the in the second half. So that's I mean, that's a huge increase there. Yeah, definitely. And if you look at the air yardage per snap numbers with Devontae Parker and Preston Williams, it's they're both doing quite well. Devontae in his 1.9 uh, air yards per snap was at 92nd percentile. So that's great. But Preston Williams was actually a little bit higher yet. I think it was like a 2.04 or something like that. I'm trying to load the uh, yeah 2.04. So that's a little bit better yet, 94th percentile. And they were used very similarly too. These are these are similarly built receivers. They're outside tall receivers. Both of them athletic for how tall they are. Um, but you know they're downfield. They're sideline threats. They're post route threats. So they're both going downfield and and they're they're getting these kind of high difficulty chucking targets from from Fitzpatrick. They're both doing very well. But of course, when a player is good as Parker was playing, gets removed. Uh, sorry, for uh, Preston Williams was playing, gets removed from the offense. And then when Parker is so much better than the alternatives as he was, he's going to really, you know, really reap that benefit in a uniquely, you know, uh, helpful way for his numbers. It's just even if uh, Williams is not quite 100 percent to start the year, which could be the case, by the way, he's got a this ACL tear, of course, but he also had one in high school. So his his knees are a slight developing concern as much as it could just as easily be explained by bad luck to this point, bad luck that he could very uh, could could quite easily just you know get past and and hopefully just never have to look back at again after this. But up until now, it's it's still not great, and it's it's not easy for any a player of any age really to bounce back from a week nine ACL tear and just be one hundred percent at week one. That's a 
like what was it cooper cup kind of got away with that but that's that's a different kind of athlete too it's like preston williams he's a big uh like long-limbed receiver who, who really does need to kind of uh put some force on on, on his on his knee joint to, to to propel himself the way he does so he could be a bit rusty and uh even if he's rusty though it's like is preston williams merely being on the field enough to kind of throw parker off of that that blistering pace that he was on last year yeah and that that's um I don't know what to make of it exactly. Like the, the Devontae Parker question is so difficult because of like the extreme, uh, you know, kind of splits between when he, you know, that first half of the season when Preston Williams, uh, you know, an undrafted guy was getting out there and, and you know, really impressing and, and, you know, being a big part of this receiving core. Um, and then, then like you laid out, uh, Parker just sort of became the only game in town. Um, so what what does that mean if there's you know an 85% Preston Williams out there? Um, hard to say. And then you know we've we've also seen the uh, depth of this receiving core get sapped um, over the course of, of recent days, um, and that that adds some pressure. And it it poses the question of where those slot snaps are going to go because both Albert Wilson and Alan Hearns. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Have both opted out of the upcoming season, um, and with that, we have a Dolphins team that that now has Parker and Williams on the outside, but you know a litany of question marks between Isaiah Ford, Jakeem Grant, uh, Gary Jennings, and, and maybe a couple of these other uh, more long shot guys. Um, what do you make of the, of that next cluster of guys? Is there anyone that that is sort of the leader in your in the clubhouse as far as your analysis goes as someone that, that can take over that that wide receiver three job in Miami? Well, it seems like it's going to be between Isaiah Ford, who I think it was the Dolphins that drafted him. Uh, it was in the seventh round way back in 2017. 16, 17, okay. 2017, yeah. yeah. So he's he's been kind of just a practice squad guy. And going into last year, he, it was it was basically his third year of being a practice squad guy. But in those final four games, he, I think, was pretty promising because um, – Basically, Isaiah Ford's problem is he's not a very good athlete. Like, he's probably a below-average athlete. Uh, he had a good broad jump number at the Combine with 127 inches there. Uh, but at six foot two, 194, which is pretty skinny, he only ran a 4'6", 140. Uh, the agility drills were only middling at best. So he, he's probably a below-average athlete. But this is also probably true of players with a pretty similar sort of frame, uh, Tyler Boyd and Richard Higgins. So there's a chance that Ford could be in that kind of athleticism category. And if, if he is, then if, if he has a certain level of skill, then it's possible that he could, he could be a good player, at least running from the slot where athleticism probably doesn't matter as much as outside. And in those four games, those final four games last year, uh, you know, he got nine targets, five targets, six targets, nine targets. And that was, that was drawing, um, sorry, that was, that was, a. A really good target rate, even though it wasn't like a high depth of target kind of thing. So he probably wasn't really getting, you know, open and stuff. But he was presenting Fitzpatrick with these quick, reliable looks. Uh, and he was, he was kind of doing like the safety uh, valve kind of role while Parker and, and of course, Mike Gesicki were running further downfield. But yeah, it was 29 targets in those four games on 177 snaps. So that's a pretty high target rate. He caught 21 of those 29 targets for 234, uh, sorry, 235 yards. That's 72.4% catch rate at 8.1 yards per target. And Fitzpatrick in those four games completed 60.2% of his passes at 7.4 yards per attempt. So it's an inconclusive small sample. It's only four games. But as far as he as far as Ford did in those four games, it was it was pretty distinctly promising, I think. And if you go back to his Virginia Tech career, he was super productive. Uh, his three seasons there at a young age. So usually in cases like that, it means the guy at least has some skill as a receiver, even if he's a bad athlete. And, you know, maybe going into his fourth year, still only 24, maybe now he's had enough development time to kind of reach kind of a new level that the, that the Dolphins didn't see in him a couple of years ago. You know, whoever said that you can't do quick math, Mario, uh, they were wrong. That was impressive on the fly math that you were doing there. Uh, with the with the target rate and all. And oh all. no, I, that was not in my. I had to pull open uh, the article, the, the training camp notes article. <laughs> Otherwise, uh, yeah, maybe I'll just guess uh, going forward, make something up, sound sure of myself as I do it. There you go, and I would totally believe it. But um, yeah, you lay out definitely an interesting case with Isaiah Ford, and I think that the age factor is also pretty interesting there with, with him just being twenty four years old and entering uh, his. 
his what his fourth uh, full NFL yeah, I'm season. Yeah, he must. Uh, let's see, he's probably turning twenty five this fall. Or, of, not till February. Oh wow! Yeah, so, so this is his, this is his fourth season. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, he's he's like there. There's probably rookie receivers this year who are older than him. <laughs> <laughs> that is like Van wild. Jefferson's probably like uh, barely younger than him or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so he, yeah, I think that late season sample probably gives him the the, the leg up over some of these other guys. Uh, Jakeem Grant is someone that I, I love for the speed variable that that he um, represents, but at the same time, there's only so many targets you can really uh, expect to kind of levy on him with, with that type of frame. Um, but I also wanted to get into Gary Jennings a little bit because he's someone who yeah. who at West Virginia he kind of did both. Like in uh, 2017, he was more of the guy that that's just getting peppered with targets. Had 139 targets in 13 games, so you know over, over 10 a game. Um, caught 97 of them, went over a thousand yards. Um, but David Sills w- was like the the red zone guy for that West Virginia offense. So Gary Jennings only had one touchdown on those 139 targets. Pretty abysmal, um, even. You know, especially when you consider the uh, the level of defenses that he was going against in the Big Twelve. But then the following year, um, the West Virginia kind of used him more as a downfield um, outside threat. So the target count almost got cut in half. Seventy four targets that year, caught fifty four of them, uh, but at, for nine hundred seventeen yards, so way more explosive on on a per target basis, and brought in thirteen touchdowns. So he's a he's someone who's proven at least at the college level, at a high college level, that, that he can uh, work both outside um, and downfield and also underneath and, and in the slot. So I think that there's some intrigue there um, with him. He's 6'1", 215, had a pretty impressive combine, actually, especially yeah. at, at that um had that size, you know, a four four two in the in the forty had you know strong jumps. The only uh, category that he was really kind of lagging in what was the cone drill, but everything else was uh, well above uh, the fiftieth percentile among receivers. So I'm kind of interested in Gary Jennings, and, and uh, you know I'm not drafting him or anything, but I definitely want to see how this wide receiver three competition shapes up in Miami because I feel like G- Gary Jennings might might work his way into the conversation. Yeah, definitely. I mean, him and Grant also, like you said, the Grants really good for you know he's 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 good for the number of plays that he can do his problem has been in the nfl it's like you're five six 165 you're just not going to play more than 400 snaps or something like that but he's been a sick kick returner this whole time and the targets they give him usually give him something useful uh he's, he's a ball carrying threat uh but yeah it's if, if it if the frame were bigger you could really see him having a lot of upside but i just can't really see him playing that much uh, in Jennings's case though I don't really know what happened here last year because the Seahawks took him in the fourth round and I thought you know that's a good draft pick he'll probably be good for them but they cut him and there's some there was something a little weird about the whole tone of that I, f- I can't remember if there was some sort of uh, uh some sort of drama with the team or something like that but yeah the teams uh, don't usually walk away from their fourth rounder before the <laughs> before the first season ends yeah, and all the same, there wasn't like – at least I didn't read about any sort of concerning character details with Jennings at West Virginia. So I, I don't if, – if some sort of you know drama with the team occurred, I have no idea why or what it would have been. But it seems improbable that they would have just let him go like that if there weren't some sort of like you know bias factor – introduced to it i don't know what i quite think of jennings and like i i could have imagined myself grading him about the same as isaiah ford as a prospect uh but definitely jennings has a lot more tools like you said he was you know he's 6'1 215 or whatever with the 442 the 37 inch vertical like he can run faster than than most receivers generally even though he's bigger than most receivers he was i I think i would call him below baseline in his junior year at west virginia uh when when he was doing the possession receiver role and but then he was way above baseline for his uh, senior season where he was only 21 at the time so it's he only was above baseline late so that makes me think he might need a couple years to to break out yet but if the question is you know against uh, an unproven group of receivers maybe maybe he doesn't need to break out properly before he gets the opportunity maybe they just kind of throw him out there because he's he's just the best option they have right now yeah i mean i i have to imagine that he'll be able to you know give some competitive reps out out there if given the opportunity because of the the tools that that you mentioned there and um 
you know, some of the other factors that the production, especially later on in, in his West Virginia career, um, yeah, especially as a, as a senior, really, really explosive with those 13 touchdowns. So someone to just like keep it, keep an eye on, you know, if, you, if you're following along with, with the Miami training camp uh, news and notes, Jen- Jennings is someone to, to keep an eye out for it. I don't, I think that he kind of represents the, uh, that, inflection point where like none of these other guys Mac Hollins uh, Matt Cole Kirk Merritt really um, feel like they have much in the way of the tools to really challenge for a role and I'm like uh, Kirk Merritt had really impressive production um, but he was playing at it at what, Arkansas, Arkansas State. State and he yeah. I, I believe he started his career at, at Texas A&M so I mean he, he was kind of just you know being it being the varsity kid on JV or something in, in a lot of senses there so yeah don't fall too much for that production I would say I would guess Jennings makes the team and is the main backup outside receiver just because he's got that length, that height, and that speed. Um, but he can definitely push for that the third receiver slot role too. So uh, he probably has a little more upside than Ford because I can't really see Ford earning that many snaps outside. If you're that lanky and you know six two one ninety, you either got to be fast or you got to be kind of like shielded from uh, the jam a little bit. Right. So, so that, that, uh, that, you know, kind of puts him in a box a little bit as far as, you know, what type of snaps um, he can give you. Um, let's move on over to, to Cleveland as, as we uh, near the end of today's programming. Um, so Austin Hooper is, is someone that, that, you know, you've kept in mind uh, throughout the course of this off season. And, and you know, you, you've talked a lot about and, and wrote a lot about what his impact means, not, not just like for him uh, fitting into this Cleveland offense, but you know what it also could represent for some of the other you know more underneath uh, type of guys like Jarvis Landry, like Kareem Hunt. Um, so let's let's break down Hooper's projected role in this offense, and you know a little bit more into what it could mean for the rest of this Browns offense. Yeah, I haven't exactly acquired many Austin Hooper shares, but I've probably been much higher on Austin Hooper all off season than most people, and it's kind of weird. It seems if anything. Uh, certainly when he, when he signed with Cleveland, his, his ADP fell off cause you know, it's nowhere near as good of a situation in terms of you know, the broader health of the offense, uh, as it was in Atlanta. And also there's, there's more questions about how the target rotation will get split up, what kind of volume of targets, et cetera, that, that stuff generally looked worse for his signing in Cleveland, but then it just seemed like public opinion just soured more and more with time from that point as if. Like people were just kind of sitting there dwelling on it, thinking about how much they hated the Cleveland offense last year and in the process just convinced themselves like, wow, Austin Hooper's bad. And I thought that was a little weird because you can think, especially in PPR scoring, you can think that the Cleveland offense is is doomed and you can still imagine Hooper being useful because it's PPR, you know, it's like even bad offenses have a lot of checkdowns. Sometimes the worst offenses have the most checkdowns. And if there are a lot to go around, he would probably be the guy to get them. So beyond that, though, I thought there's a pretty compelling evidence at this point that Hooper is a uniquely good tight end. And he's he's specifically good in ways that lend itself to a pretty high usage rate, uh, a high target rate per snap, basically. Uh, because he's, for, for about three years now, he's basically been the tight end version of Michael Thomas in that yeah he's not going to run 60 yards for the touchdown he's not going to he's probably not going to have many eight or more touchdown seasons but when it comes to just completing a pass for a first down there's basically nobody like him Mm -hmm. and at a tight end this is Hooper drawing you know right around eight yards a target going back three years now uh starting I think at about age 22 because he was an underclassman entrant out of Stanford and, you know, he's catching last year 78.1% of his t- uh, targets, catching 807 the year before that. So, yeah, it's like four touchdowns and you know, 660 yards and 71 catches. I think a lot of people look at that and they just see Jack Doyle or something. And they and I understand why they might make that mistake, but it's not like that uh, because he, he's drawing these targets and, and, you know, 7.5 yards per target, not many touchdowns. It, it seems like he's just kind of uh, there and like catching these targets because they're, they're just easy and they're not that meaningful. But when you're catching that high of a rate of those targets and you're doing it three years in a row, like clearly this is not a fluke. This guy can get open quickly and he probably is really good at like boxing out for receptions in, in tight spaces because he, he always runs at that kind of like modest or low depth of target 
and they know it's going there, but they can never seem to slow him down. Anyway. He's got the big mitts. Yeah. And he's, he's still young. So, I mean, he, he just, he'll be 26 in October. Uh, he's, he's been picking up steam each of the last three years. The Browns paid him. He's the highest compensated tight end in the NFL right now. So, I, I find it weird that people assume that that usage that went to Jarvis Landry and Kareem Hunt last year, specifically in the context of Odell Beckham playing with a uh, sports hernia and the offensive line being terrible, so the quarterback can't throw downfield. The team is the stupidest team basically of all time. Everything is dysfunctional, and it's like that that was a result last year. Yes, but we know they're not going to do any of those things. It was horrible. Why would they try to make that offense happen again? They're not going to. And we know that because the the money that they're paying Hooper dictates that. So I think the basic error that people are making is, is there's an assumption that Jarvis Landry and, and Kareem Hunt are immovable pieces from this offense and that their usage last year is assured and that it's Hooper's problem to catch up the scraps after that. Uh, I think it's basically the opposite because Landry and Hunt only had that usage last year, not just with all that other stupid nonsense going on. Cleveland didn't throw to the tight ends at all last year. They had something like 370 yards as a team from the tight end position. Oof. So if, if Landry and Hunt need th- fewer than 400 yards from the tight end rotation to put up the numbers they did last year, I think they're the ones at risk. And I think Hooper's been a, a productive enough player in a high enough volume in, in an ascending fashion the past few years that – at the very least, you can't consider him the underdog. Like at the current ADP prices of these various players, I feel like he's like clearly considered the emphatic underdog by the public. And I would, I would say you at least have to consider it more like a break even between the three. But I also think Hooper could just kind of win. Uh, yeah, I th- I think that you you know you you laid it out well there, and and I think also it's important. Uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on on this um, in terms of contextualizing the offensive system change um, that that Cleveland is undergoing. You know, with Kevin Stefanski coming in, the the, the Vikings uh, kind of famously using their tight ends a fair bit. Uh, two years ago, uh, Kyle Rudolph saw what like thir- almost fourteen percent uh, of the target share um, for the Vikings. Maybe maybe Hooper. Can you know gather up a similar amount? Of, you know, fourteen percent is around where his market share in Atlanta was. So if he can draw about that same number um, in Cleveland, then you know he will outproduce his ADP um, pretty considerably. I, I would imagine, and you know he goes in this kind of interesting cluster of tight ends and you know with everything that you just laid out there um the idea of like a, a Dallas got like taking a Dallas Goddard um well ahead of Austin Hooper just doesn't doesn't really seem to add up to me yeah I I mean I can kind of see the, the theory in a tournament of maybe going with Goddard and best ball just because you're thinking well if Zach Ertz gets hurt maybe he maybe Goddard becomes like the tight end three now sure. and I guess I can see that and, and yeah I would admit in Hooper's case I can't see that level of upside but if you're picking them to start for you in week one I, I feel like if it's PPR then then Hooper uh, basically should be going kind of around uh, I don't know like a, like a is it too much to ask for Hooper to go around where Hayden Hurst does? It's like, what, how do we have like a round between these two? There, I know Hurst has the better situation, but he also will draw targets at a lower rate than Hooper. And we know that because he always has, because he has certain traits that lend themselves to a target rate less than Hooper's do. So uh, it's, it's weird to me that people just think like, oh man, now uh, finally we have a real tight end in Atlanta <laughs> and, and Hayden Hurst can, can get this, you know, circus ended and in some decent play at a quality position for the first time. Uh, it's it's weird. It's like Hurst is the one who has something to prove, not Hooper. right. Yeah, no, exactly. Like Hurst has never you know been the the guy, and he was injured his rookie year, obviously. And then you know Mark Andrews just sort of took over, and uh, Nick Boyle locking down like his his certain role in, among the tight ends. Like there was only so much that Hurst could do. But yeah, we we don't know what a a fully fed Hayden Hurst looks like whereas Austin Hooper we do and it looks like a really highly efficient player that's going to catch the ball at at an extremely high rate and you know move those chains for you and if that's what you want your tight end function to be in your offense and like Hooper's your guy 
Yeah, and as far as the Stefanski offense specifically goes, I think it's going to have to look a little different okay. than the Minnesota one just because Hooper isn't Rudolph and he's, he's not even really Irv Smith. Um, but they're clearly – they have ideas, you know, and, and Mayfield is a little more mobile probably than May, than uh, Kirk Cousins. So there might it might be more kind of like bootleg play action kind of stuff, like maybe trying to get Hooper on fewer – uh, slants and curls than he had in Atlanta and maybe some more uh, kind of corner type routes off the bootleg play action, trying to get him, uh, you know, open laterally, but also in a position to run a little more after the catch, basically. And it maybe even in the red zone more often than he was in Atlanta. So I can see Stefanski if he if he plays things right, I can imagine a way to, to get Hooper uh, to be like a more explosive version of himself. But if if nothing else, he gives them a pretty easy way to implement it like a a uniquely good source of like third down completions. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, kind of, kind of like rounding things out, you know, you, you laid out a, a ton of, uh, you know, interesting nuggets about Austin Hooper, but, but, you know, I think also it, it does feel like it's being under appreciated, I, I guess, like the, the sheer amount of money that he got, like it, the Cleveland isn't giving him like the biggest tight end contract to like, you know, have some sort of like underutilized role for him. Like they, they wouldn't have done that uh, if they didn't envision him being like a major, major staple um, of this offense. Yeah. They're, they're not paying in that contract to use him like Kyle juice check or whatever. Like it's, it's not going to, it, it, it's, it's <laughs> granted. I can't remember the last guy who, who was, who had Hooper's traits, who was in a really elite tight end capacity but i guess i'm thinking he could almost maybe be something like a dallas clark kind of tight end something like that uh, a little different because he was he was faster than hooper definitely but um just just that ability to to really uh car- carry a, a uniquely reliable volume at tight end it's like I, he, he showed that last year in those 13 games before he got hurt he should be a little bit more developed this year uh, going into his prime basically and you know the browns have every reason to, to, to look to, to put him in every position of favor. So I, I, I don't understand the pessimism with him, really. I don't either. And, uh, you know, when it comes to uh, some of the guys that are going ahead of him in drafts at that position, um, you know, it, it, I think it's important to, uh, you know, maybe maybe consider what those other options are bringing to the table versus, uh, you know, what, what Hooper is going to have there in Cleveland. Uh, that's going to wrap things up for today's show. For Mario Puig, I'm John McKechnie. Thanks for listening to the Rotowire. NFL podcast brought to you by Dynasty Owner. Dynasty Owner.